This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Kevin Cruz is the founder and CEO of LeadX, L-E-A-D-X, and a New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is Great Leaders Have No Rules, Contrarian Leadership Principles to Transform Your Team and Business. Kevin started his first company at the age of 22 and went on to build and sell several multi-million dollar technology companies, winning both Inc. 500 and Best Place to Work awards. He's also the author of some other books, including We, How to Increase Performance and Profits Through Full Engagement, Employee Engagement 2.0, and 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management. He's a Forbes leadership columnist and was named one of the top thought leaders in trust across America. Kevin and I talk about lessons he's distilled from his experiences, both his failures, which we really dig into, and not just at work, but in his personal life as well, and his successes. He shares his somewhat unorthodox views on leadership, including a closed and not an open-door policy, the importance of picking favorites, yes, that's right, picking favorites, and having, quote, no rules, quote, which doesn't mean anything goes laissez-faire. It means having crucial conversations about shared values and then co-creating standards for action that flow from those conversations. Kevin believes all of us lead in all the different parts of our lives. It's not a choice. Rather, it's a matter of what your leadership is and the impact that you're having on the people around you. Kevin's insights on how he learned this big idea and how he uses it are both profound and practical. So now, get set to listen to and learn from someone who's been a real student of leadership for quite some time, consciously, deliberately learning from his experience, and who offers important lessons from his experience for you, for leading the life you want. It's Kevin Cruz. Welcome to Work and Life. Thanks, Stu, and sorry someone sent you the long bio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's important for everyone to know who we're talking to, so um, I'm glad to have all that background. So what what inspired you, Kevin, to think about, study, and ultimately write about leadership? Well, uh, this book in particular uh, has, I've been thinking about for a long time. I learned the hard way that leadership, I call it a superpower. Uh, leadership is a superpower. Unfortunately, a lot of what I learned was the traditional management and leadership approaches. 
um, which didn't work out very well. My first two companies when I was in my 20s crashed and burned, hmm. uh, and it was not fully being aware of the power of, of leadership. Hmm. And then I got better but was given old-school wisdom uh, that didn't work so well. So let me yeah, jump please. in here and ask you, uh, what were the big insights from those initial failures? What, what, was, what did you take from that experience? You know, I, I was so young at the time that um, – it's taken a lot of time to to sort of process what was going wrong mm-hmm. back then, and I think looking back, there was there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages to starting a company in your 20s. I mean, you, you, you the advantages you can work around the clock, you don't have the risk of you know mortgages or kids' college money and all the rest. The the downside is you really don't have the experience or the relationships that a mm-hmm. lot of uh, people do. Um, but setting those things aside. I thought I was always the smartest person in the room. Like I thought I was the mm. entrepreneur genius. I think I thought I could hustle my way. You know, this was back in early PC days, and it was just sort of like, let me just ride that wave. PC that by that you mean personal computer, right, Kevin? <laughs> That's not, exactly not right. Thank knows you, what Stu. You mean by that. Okay. <clears throat> I just dated myself again. Yes, you did. So yeah, I learned <laughs> a lot of lessons back then about leadership yeah. that you learned later. Uh, so. Say more about how you ultimately came to the kind of wisdom that you're sure. sharing in, in your wonderful new book, Great Leaders Have No Rules. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the turning point for me, uh, I, I ended up selling a, a company, a small company when I was 30 to a larger company that was doing human capital management, a company called Conexa, eventually was called Conexa. Mm-hmm. And they taught me about employee engagement. And I, so I'm not, uh, I'm not a consultant. I'm not a, I'm not a professor. I come at this from an applied approach, a very mm-hmm. simple approach. But once they started giving me my engagement surveys and showing me the behaviors that could trigger higher levels of engagement, mm-hmm. the whole new world opened up. And mm-hmm. it really does work. You can release discretionary effort. You can release people's best ideas by leading in the right way. And that's not like what I was told early on, which is, Kevin, there's a lot of acting in leadership. And don't forget to wear your mask. And don't be too friendly with people because, you know, God forbid you have to fire them someday. You know, it was all about the old school kind of command and control approach. Mm-hmm. And that does, didn't work back then, and I really don't think it works now. So the, the engagement uh, survey feedback process, it opened your eyes. That's right. And what did you see? I saw – I didn't like what I saw, Stu. So what I saw was that I was a very um, – it starts with personality, of course, and I didn't have the self-awareness. I was a type A driver introvert. And what I saw mm. in the surveys are things like, wow, uh, Kevin passes me in the hall every Monday morning but never asks me how my weekend was. What an asshole. What an asshole. Uh, Kevin probably doesn't <laughs> know the names of or, my kids. Or, it, or am I just inferring that? <laughs> I don't know if they put it in the survey, but oh. I'm pretty sure they wanted to. Okay. And, and and it was little things where I, again, didn't realize. I just thought I was hmm. walking down the hall from one meeting to another, thinking about my to-do list, thinking mm-hmm. about my quarterly numbers. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, they're seeing me and a whole other thing is going on that I didn't realize. And so often when we talk about leadership, I think we get – people create these complicated definitions. I've created them. Uh, but – if you boil it down, leadership is influence. John Maxwell has suggested that, Ken Blanchard mm-hmm. and others. And on that simple level, we influence people all of the time, whether we want to of or not, course. by what we say and by what we don't say, by what we do and what we don't do. 
So I often say, I kind of end the book saying, leadership is not a choice. It's just, are you leading in the right direction or a wrong direction? So you, you must have been open, though, to, to seeing yourself in that social mirror that the engagement process, the survey of feedback and training process uh, um, provided for you. Can you say f- more about like what led you to be um, you know open to and and accessible to sure. to changing your approach and your thinking yeah I, I would like to pretend that I was just sort of enlightened or a good guy and discovered it, but you know I, I was the hardcore capitalist entrepreneur trying to drive the bottom line, and mm-hmm. so initially, you know when you have some of your best people leave. That really catches your attention. And when you learn that, you know, you increase employee engagement, you redu- reduce turnover, that, that catches your attention. But I'll tell you, Stu, that it was later um, the best compliment I ever got uh, mm-hmm. as a manager didn't come from somebody who worked for me. It came from the wife of somebody who worked for me. Hmm. And it was at the end-of-the-year holiday party, and she said, hey, Kevin, I want to thank you for making my marriage better. And I had no idea what she was talking about. Well, and, and what, let's let's understand. What was she talking <laughs> about, Kevin? So she, she explained that when uh, before her husband joined my team, she said he would come home and be such a grump. She wouldn't want to hang out with him. But once he started working for me, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not making this up, Stu, he, she said he went back to being the man I married. And all this stuff I was doing to help the bottom line, and I didn't want turnover to be so high, it was having an impact outside of the office. Uh, you know, in the community, in the families. Mm-hmm. And that's when I finally kind of got it. Like, okay, this stuff matters, not just the surface level of let's make some numbers. This is really changing lives. I mean, it impacts our health. It impacts fam- family quality of life, uh, marital intimacy, any measure you look at. And I know you know this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the spillover and crossover effects are very powerful. And that's that's what got me for the last 20 years now, writing and thinking about leadership um, trying to contribute how I can as sort of a, an everyday manager, everyday entrepreneur. Why does that matter to you? I mean, what is life if we're not trying to help uh, in a, a, a community in our own way? Uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's it's something that I think I can do, make the best difference by using business, by using entrepreneurship as a tool. But ultimately, it's about how can you make a difference? How can you add value? Well, that's that's a noble way to put it, and uh, yeah, I, I see the the work of leadership is in the same way. It's about uh, mobilizing people towards goals that matter, uh, and and realizing that you have an impact beyond the people that you're directly addressing. And so that uh, that holiday conversation that that meant a lot to you, and the, and that that too, it seems opened your thinking to realizing that these ripple effects or spillover effects were you're doing. Like you, you were going to influence whether or not this family had, uh, had an employee show up as a father or the mo- a mother or a sister or brother or whatever, uh, and to affect the, you know, the, the quality of that family's life. Yeah, that's right. And, and the one that really surprised me in the research for an earlier book, it wasn't just – we all kind of get when the spouse, we come home grumpy and they get grumpy – but it even uh, crosses over to our kids. There's this research study of fourth and fifth grade children. When dad had a bad day at work, 
within 24 to 48 hours, the teachers were reporting that little Johnny or Jane were more likely to act out or, or withdraw. These behaviors, whether we're punishing them when we come home from work or stress or whether we're just rejecting them, they internalize that. And I never would have guessed that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, My most recent uh, article in the Harvard Business Review, uh, digital article, is about how parents' work affects their children, which looks at some of the research that I and others have done uh, that that demonstrates how – what you do at work, how you feel about it, your your values and your ability to be free and yourself at work that that affects your your children's in terms uh, in terms of their their mental health their, and their their physical health and their school performance. Yeah. Uh, this this is real, and it's not many uh, CEOs that have that understanding, that awareness. So you also write in Great Leaders Have No Rules right at the start um, that a f- failure in leadership led to the failure of your marriage. That's right. Can you describe what you learned from that experience about leadership? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I <laughs> The day um, – I, I've sold a couple of companies, but the last one, which was the biggest one, uh, I had gone and signed papers and – went home. And of course, uh, the first thing I do is I say to my then wife, I say, hey, let's make sure the money actually got transferred over to the account. And so she opens up the laptop and punches into the bank and uh, bank account. And I'm over looking over her shoulder. And there it is, this you know life-changing amount of money. And it's kind of like, I guess, if you won the lottery, but you feel like the thoughts in my mind was, People said I couldn't do it, and it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears for the last five years, and this is amazing. And as I'm having this experience and having these thoughts, she says, huh, I could take half, leave you tomorrow, and never work another day the rest of my life. She said that to you? She said that out loud and then kind of laughed, like as a joke, and then I kind of laughed. Oh. And I said, huh, you know, it was kind of funny, but kind of a weird thing to pop into somebody's head. And it was about six weeks after that, she sat me down and said, hey, listen, you know, we got to – we should – work on our marriage or or call it off. Mm-hmm. So we were young enough to find other people. And six months later, we were separated. Six months after that, she was engaged to, to someone else. Hmm. And you already had three kids by then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I think any time uh, I, I believe any time a relationship uh, breaks up, I mean, there's lots of variables involved. There's mm-hmm. a lot of dynamics involved. Um, but I also think the power is in always looking at what was my role in it? What was what could I have maybe done differently? Mm-hmm. And what I just said a few minutes ago, leadership is influence, and whether you want to have that influence or not. And while I was mindful of my self-leadership, leading myself to have discipline and, and fitness and to get up early and get to work, and mm-hmm. I had leadership at work, mm-hmm. boy, everyone was really engaged, winning Best Place to Work awards. You're helping other people's marriages. Yeah, I was helping other people's marriages. By, by making a great place to work There for you go. People. I'd forgotten one marriage, and I wasn't thinking, hmm. am I actively leading, am I actively influencing in the right direction in my own marriage uh, at home? It, it oddly, I mean, it sounds so obvious now, right? Uh, but at the time, it was like self-discipline, self-leadership, leadership at work. Marriage seems okay. You know, you got three kids and juggling the house. Like it's different than when you're when you're in the honeymoon phase or you're first dating. And I couldn't see the signs. And I'm mm-hmm. looking back in, in some of the research, you know, in the book. 
and, and people don't like to hear the the statistics, but you know, families that uh, eat together at the dinner table, you know, four or more nights uh, a week. Boy, you go through that bullet list. The, the kids do better in school. They're they're less likely to experiment with drugs. They they delay their first onset of sexual experience when they have sex. It's safe sex. Like all these variables for families that huddle up, you know, four or five nights a week mm-hmm. at dinner. Mm-hmm. And so, even this simple concept, I urge you know parents out there. You're leading in one direction or another. You're home for dinner or not. It's and not a choice. It's not a choice. There's, you're, you're making some choice. You're making some choice mm-hmm. that's going to have some impact. Mm-hmm. And I'm not – I wasn't perfect then and I'm not perfect now. But think about the date night and the research of, you know, is there one night a week or every two weeks that you and your spouse are going away to have a real conversation and a real connection? You're doing it or you're not. And at least statistically, mm-hmm. you are influencing the – the marital intimacy and marital quality of that relationship. So here again, just as in the description you gave us earlier of you know what happened in your early days and how your mind changed as a result of your exposure to useful feedback through what I think of as a social mirror, the data that you got from people around you at work that helped you to see uh, a different way of thinking about yourself as a leader – what did you learn looking back after your marriage ended about what you could have been paying attention to? You said you failed to to read the signals, if I heard you yeah, right. Yeah, right. So what, looking back at that experience, what, what could you have done differently? Well, and, and this was something, again, with benefit of hindsight, you know, one of the chapters that became the title is about rules. Leaders have no rules, not break the rules, have no rules. And mm. that was one of the problems of the marriage was that when I went to start the another startup, uh, there was a normal conversation with my then wife and, uh, around. You know, she didn't want me to do it. She said, "You know, you, oh. why why risk the money? You're going to work. You're going to be stressed out. You're going to take time away." And so we went back and forth, and she said, "Listen, you can, you can start this company, but I want you home every night uh, by six to have dinner with the kids and spend the time with the kids, and then at 10 p.m." I want you to sit on the couch with me to watch TV or hang out with me, mm-hmm. and you can't work on the weekends. Hmm. And at the time, I thought this was normal negotiations, marital negotiations. I said, okay, sure, I'll start a company and agree to those rules. What happens every time we bump into a rule, Every time, whether it's at work or now in, in my marriage? Every mm-hmm. time we bump into a rule, we've taken away the opportunity to make a choice, to make a decision. It becomes – your marriage, not my marriage. Your company, not my company. Hmm. And boy, I I was there at dinner. I sat on that couch watching horrible TV from 10 to 11. But what, I was physically there. Did I want to be there? Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Did I – was I mentally psychologically there? there. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Now, instead of rules, what if we had standards, conversations anchored in values? What if it was, hey, listen, the concern I have about you doing another startup – is the impact it's going to have on our family. So let's together, let's co-create. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about our shared values for our family, our kids, mm-hmm. our marriage. Let's co-create some practices, some rituals, some standards. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a very different thing. But I didn't <laughs> – that would have been the speech I would have given to my younger self. Mm. And, and we see this all the time uh, at work. When, when I had sold an earlier company uh, to Conexa – and the CEO told me I was, had to go in for uh, a couple of years. Uh, he said, listen, you know, uh, don't think of me as, as 
your boss. We're equals. You're a partner. We're going to build this company together. You know, this is going to be great. We're, we're, we're all equal here. 30 days later, I get my uh, expense check, and it's short, $4. Not a lot of money. I'm thinking, must have filled the form out wrong. I send an email to the CFO, and he says, we deducted the Post-it notes you tried to reimburse. You're not allowed to buy Post-it notes. <laughs> Man. Why, I said. He said, it's a wasteful expense. Now, no one had told me that, <laughs> and I had bumped into my first rule. Now, how mm. much like a partner did I feel when I couldn't get $4 for my post notes? How much I of don't a, know. Probably not much. Not much, Kevin. right? So, you know, <laughs> and, and I bumped into this rule that I had no say in, mm. and suddenly it disengaged me. But when I went to the CEO and I said, Rudy, what is up with this? This is ridiculous. To his credit, he immediately said, I, I didn't know this was bumming people out. Fine. Everybody can go buy Post-it notes. But he said, Kevin, let me tell you something. He said, one of our values is profitability. And it was a written – it's unusual, but it was a written value. It was profitability. And he said, I would walk around the office and people would be doodling on Post-it notes. They'd be writing phone messages on Post-it notes. He says, you know what I use? And he showed me he had scrap paper from his printer that he had torn twice to make little squares of scrap paper. He says, that's what I doodle. That's what I take phone messages. It's like John D. Rockefeller. I mean, he never wasted a dime. But no, go on. No, And it was the symbol. He said, mm -hmm. it's a symbol of frugality. It was mm -hmm. a symbol of frugality. If it's bothering people, it's overruled. Now, even though mm. – so I stayed in that company many years after my earnout, non-compete and all of that. I was very engaged. And I never bought Post-it notes and tried to reimburse them, even though I could. Because un unlike a rule, this was a conversation anchored in values. Mm -hmm. It was guardrails. It was a symbol. And I, I look, now once I got it, it's like, I want to be a good partner. I want to be part of the tribe. I want to you know, set a good example. But whether it's how much money you can spend when you travel or a dress code or mm -hmm. number of vacation days, you know, these rules are sort of a parental – uh, attempt to like kind of control the the knuckleheads, the three percent of the company mm. that might misbehave, and it's disengaging the the ninety seven percent of of good people. So that's a big idea. In in great leaders have no rules. How how do values then uh, provide those guardrails? Well, I I think values created in the right way are mm -hmm. actionable and they're they're not just a, a poster on the wall. Yeah. You talk about them with your candidates to make sure the people you're recruiting are are attracted by your your values. They're reinforced through that onboarding and training. They're talked about and lived and used as positive and negative examples. Um and Stu going back to the the blend, the integration of, of work and and life, and this is the one that people get a little crazy on me with is I say I Teenagers shouldn't have curfews. You know, I've got uh, three teens. They've never had a curfew, never had rules um, because it's the same thing. You know, I I remember uh, as a my sister's – There's some cheering going on in the control booth, <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that later. Please, Kevin. <laughs> That's Continue. right. No curfew. Um, I can remember being young and my older sister's who weren't able to drive yet and be 10 p.m. or whatever. And, and as it got closer to 10 p.m., I'd see my father start to pace – and then it's 10 p.m. and he's yelling at my mom, I knew they'd be late. They're doing it again. And they would walk in and what happens? They're claiming their watch is, you know, they're liar. They, they lie. <laughs> you know, my watch my says. My watch stops. Yeah, it's 10 minutes. Can't we, use we that saw in the digital minutes. age, but go on. <laughs> he, uh, and, and he would, all of a sudden, in his mind, it was about like they've broken his rule. It's not about getting your children home safe. It's all of a sudden about mm -hmm. um, 
power and respect mm-hmm. and control. And in their mind, it sent that strong signal. This is dad's house. This is dad's family. It's mm-hmm. not ours. I don't we own this place. We didn't own this place. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, the relationship for several years you know, deteriorated um, very quickly. And it's not as if I tell my kids they can do anything they want or that I ignore mm-hmm. the issue. If they're going out on a Saturday night, I'll say, hey, what you doing? They say, well, we're going to this big, important high school party. And I'll say, when are you coming home? And remember, I love you guys so much. I'm going to be worried about you till you come home. I'm not going to be able to fall asleep till you come home. And we all agreed we would go to your brother's basketball game that's early tomorrow morning. And when do you guys want to come home? And mm-hmm. they'll say 11 o'clock. And I'll think, geez, I would have told them 12. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and whether they come home at 10.50 or 11 or 11.10. So often that negotiation goes in your favor if you let people decide for themselves so long as they understand what the issues are. It has always gone in my favor. I, I, I'm not even making this up. On prom nights and things where I thought my teens were going to be like, hey, dad, everybody's sleeping over at the Jersey Shore and we want to go and do that. No, they're that, like that's what happens here in Philadelphia, folks. If you're listening from somewhere outside the country, outside of Philadelphia, yeah, you need that, to explain a, the reference. That's a standard uh, practice here for high schoolers in uh, in Philadelphia <laughs> and its environs. They go to the Jersey Shore for a prom night, and it's a disaster for all parents. It's it's a disaster, and and I I was able to dodge that one at least for two out of the three. We'll see what happens with my son, but um, so that that's why I'm saying it's not that. I'm saying, oh, we just are wild, crazy, no rules, like anything goes. That's not the message. The message is that rules crowd out conversation. We need to have mm-hmm. conversation that's deeper than just because I said so. And, and what's – I mean that that just, of course, makes so much sense and is consistent with so much of the, the literature in, on leadership, which shows that if you are clear about the – ends, but flexible about the means, you get engagement. You get people who want to be a part of our our enterprise here together. Um, we're going we're gonna to be going to break in just, a, just about a minute or so, but I wanted to ask about um, some of the other key principles in um, great leaders have no rules. Uh, in particular, the, the notion of putting things on calendars versus lists. You've got some wisdom on that. Can, can you give us the, the brief version of that, and then we're going we're gonna, to uh, step aside for a moment? The brief version is if you really want to achieve great productivity and reduce stress, throw away your to-do list. Throw out your to-do list completely and replace it with your calendar. If you really want to do something, put it on your calendar and then live from that calendar. Mm. This, is, this is how my wife operates. Uh, but but uh, one of my children, uh, especially I'm aware, he's he's a major list maker. Uh, why is it that uh, my wife's approach is better than my son's? Well, I would say for – it's not that I'm anti-list. So I think project lists and, and other kinds of lists are great. I certainly have grocery lists going all the time. Uh-huh. Um, it's about if you have – you know, seven give or take things, you can remember that. If you have 10, a list is helpful. If you have to track more than a dozen items uh, to do, mm-hmm. then the studies show that 40%, 40 40% of everything that's put on a to-do list never gets done at all. And then about half of what gets done, it's done within hours of us writing it on the list. So the to-do list mm-hmm. as a tool is just not very effective because it's too easy for us to go to the quick thing, mm-hmm. the, the thing that causes less pain than the, the strategic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the idea. No tool is, is perfect, but when you really take the time to say, 
when am I going to do it? For how long will I do it? Write it down. Your odds of completing it go way up. So leading with love, what does that mean to you? Yeah, Stu, I go back to how I was trained and and told, like, don't get too close to your team members. You know, you need to remain objective or God forbid you have to do layoffs someday and they're all your friends now. Mm -hmm. You know, you need this distance. And I've learned that you need to do the opposite of that. Um, If if, now we're, you know, in this day and age, I mean, of course, I'm not talking about uh, inappropriate, passionate love. Um, the mm-hmm. Greeks called it agape, and and I mentioned in the book uh, the work of one of your colleagues, Dr. Barsada, who talks mm-hmm. about companionate love. Yes, so it's about um, you know this this compassion, this uh, caring that we have for for hopefully all all humankind, um, but certainly our colleagues. And I think this caring on a deep level. Um, at first, I was challenged by it because, again, I was sort of raised to say, hey, it's, it, you got to have some distance there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is, look, we all work with people, a lot of different people. And whether it's a personality difference or whatever, sometimes like someone on your team is, is you know, they're a, they're a low performer or they're a discipline problem mm-hmm. of some sort. Um, and I, I thought it was uh, – I don't do a lot of – uh, I'm not a big sports guy, so I don't do a lot of sports analogies. Mm-hmm. But um, legendary basketball coach John Wooden, supposedly, you know, every year uh, uh, he would he would um, tell his players, "I'm not going to like you all the same, but I will love you all the same." Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that kind of lesson, plus trying to just um, get to a, a better place in my life, you know, spiritually. Like every major religion talks about, you know do unto others, some form of that. And I well, think... And to really accept each individual for who she or he or they are. That's right. Right, And, and to know that you, you're not going to give each one the same thing because each one requires something different. And, but I, and it's funny, when you say that like that, that seems so obvious. Mm-hmm. And yet for a lot of years, I couldn't quite understand. I thought, to be fair, you have to treat everybody the same. And that's mm. the least fair thing you can do is to treat... <laughs> Your high performers, the same as the low performers, or to not individualize your approach to leadership right. based on their strengths, their their abilities. Uh, and so that's that is really the idea is like, look, this isn't about liking uh, everybody uh, the same, but it's having this emotional caring and then play, playing favorites for those who deserve it. Wait, now, I should tell you one of the mantras in our family uh, was – Everyone's different. And by that we meant we're not going to give you all the same thing to our kids because you each need something different because you're different people. It's the same basic idea and and it's not that we made it up or that you did. I mean it's it's a kind of wisdom that's been around for a while but it took you a while to learn that and that it's – that, that you should treat uh, people differently uh, according to what their needs and interests are and what, what they're capable of, of receiving and how they can use that. So, so how did that play out for you in, uh, when you started to adopt that, that way of, of leading? It's um, not, not to simplify it, but it was, it was like magic. Uh, I mean, once I was able to still... Uh, connect and care on a personal level, it did not change. If anything, it, it made me uh, have an easier time with giving feedback. Um, I'm very high in agreeableness on the five-factor personality model, uh-huh. and so it's tough for me to give 
feedback. I'm worried I'm going to hurt your feelings or mm-hmm. we're going to have a fight about it. So I would withhold that feedback. What I finally realized is, you know, uh, your team members don't need another friend. They need a, a coach, a leader who's going to give them feedback mm-hmm. to make them better. Mm-hmm. They want that feedback. It sounds trite to say feedback is a gift, but it is if it's done in in the right way. And mm-hmm. so once it, everything came from well, this with, with place the right of intent as well, the right intent. Yes, that's right. Not to punish them, right? To but, help them. But and as you were about to say, because you care about them, that's where it's all coming from, right? Mm-hmm. You you would be doing them a disservice not to bring something up uh, to mm-hmm. their attention because if you care about someone, your family member, a friend. That you're the person to tell them, hey, you got some spinach in your teeth yeah. or whatever that is. Well, sometimes we have to be cruel to be kind, as the bard <laughs> said, right? Another song choice. <laughs> that's that's the idea. Uh, you've you've got to you've got to give critical feedback yeah. if you want it. Is that is that the essence of what you mean by leading with love? I, I think it's giving yourself permission to care, even care deeply, even if you don't like them, mm-hmm. and then to show that you care in ways like giving feedback and mm-hmm. giving them attention. But also, as we talked about at the the beginning of the the show, it's in the little things. I you know I was such a type A driver walking down the hallways, ignoring everybody. I I, it, I didn't do it on purpose. I was just thinking about tasks, not people. Mm-hmm. They're thinking, oh, look, there's rude, rude Kevin walking by me, not even saying hello again. And so we can show love by by just giving attention and time, mm-hmm. making eye contact, a little smile. How was uh, Susanna's soccer game over the weekend? These tell people that you actually care about them. Yeah, I, I've often thought that the most precious asset a leader has to give is their attention. We've got Mohammed calling from Chicago. Mohammed, welcome to Work and Life. Hi, thank you. I love this show, actually. And I'm actually an ophthalmologist, mm-hmm. and we have a whole bunch of offices. And for about 15 years, I used to have, you know, a different management style, like on the ground, what was going on. Uh, but as we've grown, we've grown to 70 employees. We have a, a hierarchy, so we brought in a CFO and a VP of development, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to structure me. Mm. And so, but it seems to me from, you know, this topic that you guys are talking about, uh, like, you know, I like to treat certain people differently. If somebody's selling really good, they get a bigger bonus than somebody that's, you know, doing average. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's making me think maybe I should go back to the way I was before, uh, whereas now what they're trying to do is they're trying to structure me so we can scale it. Uh, hmm. Well, how do you feel about that? I mean, I just in my mind, it's making me doubt what I've, we've been trying to move to. That's that's a great question, Mohammed. Thanks for for bringing it to us, Kevin. What do you think? Well, you know, I think back to when you know, obviously, I started each of my companies as employee number one, and then scaled up to two hundred and fifty or, or three hundred. And you definitely have to. Uh, put some some guidelines and policies in place as you scale. However, when those things become so narrow that you start to treat everybody the same, that's when the problems occur. And so what I would say, you know, I think about guardrails. So you mentioned compensation and bonuses. There can be uh, the same bonus for everyone, but that's not the same dollar amount. That's the same bonus plan or the same bonus uh, guidelines. And then whether somebody's the high performer or the low performer, you know, they get a very different <laughs> number from the same system. It's not when, when you uh, play favorites in the right way, it's not that uh, your best performers don't have to you know, follow the normal norms. It's that 
they are treated differently uh, if they make a mistake or, or mess up. So you do need to give that individualized attention from the manager level, each individual manager. So what would you say to Muhammad, though, about uh, revising what he's being sort of uh, strongly encouraged to do by his new his new colleagues and, and the people that are trying to standardize so that they can scale? Well, I think standardizing on, on process makes sense. So if everybody has the same process for reviews and all that, that's great. But I think individualizing rewards and treatment and opportunities needs to be, uh, needs to be part of that. And Mohammed, I, I, you know, I hate to go not with the research answer, but as the leader of that firm, I mean, you, you know, the, the firm will go as you go. So you need to be comfortable with that approach. And if you need to go back to some of your individualization, I would encourage it. Thank you, Mohammed, for, for that really important uh, question. Uh, are rules there to be changed? Uh, the the question of an, an open-door policy we're going to get to now, maybe that's something you have a question about. Uh, how open can you be? How, how available can you be? Kevin, what is your wisdom on that question? Wow. I used to uh, just cringe every time I would hear that knock, 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 got a minute, <laughs> three words that would just – you know, interrupt whatever deep work I was trying to get done. And like a lot of these policies, whenever they were first put into place, they have good intentions. Hey, let's facilitate communication. Let's solve problems. Uh, Let's have a flat organization. You can leapfrog your boss. There's a couple of problems. The obvious problem is, especially this day and age, uh, whoever's being interrupted, it's very difficult to get deep work done, strategic work done, creative Mm -hmm. thinking done. Mm -hmm. That's the obvious one. The other issue is research suggests that with an open door policy, half of the team members will never go through the open door with a new idea, with a problem, with a question, because there's not the psychological safety to come in. They're not sure if they're going to look dumb or interrupt Mm -hmm. the boss and make her mad. So half – it's a passive communication policy with half the people are not participating in. Mm. The challenge with the other half that do come in all the time – uh, there was a, an article not too long ago from from Marshall Goldsmith who said, mm-hmm. who are all these people coming through that open door? Um, did you hire the wrong people? Do they not have the training they need to succeed? Or do they not have permission to solve problems, make decisions without running it by you first? Like, are you sort of responsible for your own interruptions? Why can't they mm-hmm. go out and, and do this stuff? Are you feeding that beast? Are you feeding the beast? And so – my suggestion is not that we slam the door completely shut. You know, I suggest you close your door and open your calendar and think of it more like office hours and to each their own. You know, maybe maybe uh, someone has open, quote unquote, open door time the last hour of every day or mm-hmm. maybe it's every afternoon but not the morning or maybe it's every Friday um, so that people know that, hey, we respect focused Work, scheduled work, time blocking, and yet there's still pockets of time in each day or several times a week for things that just can't wait. In a more active way, if we're really trying to facilitate communication, rather than just saying, hey, my door's open, like they can talk to me anytime they want. Let's do those weekly Mm one-on-ones. Talk my world changed like I I, unbelievable when I started the practice of one-on-ones. And I'm shocked at how many people still – how many managers are still not doing 
weekly or biweekly one-on-ones. But that is an active form of communication. The 50% that want to hide or don't feel confident to come through your door. They, they have an invitation. They have a requirement. They have a requirement. And it's their meeting. It's not your meeting as the manager. So they tell you what's on their mind. Mm-hmm. What do they think about what's going on? Um, and, of course, it's extra time to build that connection, to mm-hmm. have that relationship strengthen. Now, how is your adopting this, let's call it more evolved approach to leadership that you've really learned through some hard, hard lessons. How has it affected your own, uh, you, you referred earlier to your self-leadership, like your health, sure. you, you referred to your spiritual life. How does all this fit with uh, the world inside of Kevin? Yeah. It, again, it's been, it's been a complete turnaround over the years. And I mean, from the obvious business standpoint, you know, this style, new style of leadership for me has led to fast growing companies, you know, some best place to work awards, which is really the only thing I've been proud of in terms of the awards on an, on an individual level, um, (laughs) doing a book tour, maybe I'm a little off my exercise and healthy eating habits a bit, Mm -hmm. but, uh, it, it's helped me to focus on myself first. I, it's, again, it sounds corny to you, but I say, you know, you can't give what you don't have. And so mm-hmm. I need to start. That's a good um, way to put it. Yeah, I need to start with myself. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I never got remarried, so I can't give hmm. you a positive case study about my second marriage just yet. Is that, is that a declaration of your life from here on <laughs> no, out? No, no, not at all. Or is it just your current state? <laughs> it's just my current state. Okay. I'm glad you clarified that for all the callers out there, Stu. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Um, But let's talk about my kids who were quite young when I suddenly became a single dad Mm. uh, at least half the time. And it was very easy where I now think all of the time, okay, I need to be leading in the right direction with my kids. And, you know, I've got some flexibility I recognize that most people uh, don't have at this point. But Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm waking up at 530 every morning to make breakfast with my kids and Mm -hmm. sort of have that. Um, that that quick morning huddle before mm-hmm. they go off to, to school and I drive them to school. I'm there making dinner, eating dinner with them every night. I'm at, you know, over half of all their numerous events. And the, you know, it's been now um, over 10 years, almost a dozen years. And thankfully, I mean, knock, knock on wood, um, the kids have grown up and they're amazing young people. I mean, they're physically healthy, mentally healthy, doing amazing in, in school and there is just so much love uh, that I see that they have for each other and I think they have mm-hmm. for me. But that doesn't happen – I don't believe that happens accidentally. I mean I think for it's sure about – It's that attention. It's mm-hmm. that time investment. Uh, it's being mindful as a parent. You know, my, Individually, you got to be mindful of your health and your mental health. But with your kids, you have to be mindful of, of your relationship with your kids. A lot of people feel that by taking care of their own mind, body, spirit, that they're being selfish. Mm. I mean, you even use the term taking care of yourself. And some people listening might be thinking, well, I can't do that because I would feel guilty. Um, what, how, how do you frame your own sort of taking care of yourself? I mean, you, you did speak about how uh, you, know, you can only give what you have. Yeah. How does that help you to get over the hurdle to the extent yeah. you feel it of you know the sense of guilt that many people do feel about 
uh, you know, let's call it self-care, generally speaking. Sure. Well, it's something that certainly crosses my mind. If I'm going to be on the treadmill uh, for an hour and uh, my son is downstairs and I'm, that's time I could be spending with mm-hmm. him or something, I think about it from that level um, e- even now. But I'm also very clear that I think one of the best ways we can, again, influence our mm-hmm. kids is just by having them see what we are doing. It's not so much what we say to them. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, kids hopefully will remember it or appreciate it when they're 30 or 40. But I think... You mean the words? <laughs> the words. Ah, that's not, not my so much. experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that we have to model what great looks like. And mm-hmm. so if they see mom and dad investing some time mm-hmm. in working out, at some point they will mm-hmm. they will want to work out too. And that's been my experience with mm-hmm. my kids. Even my, my kids, my girls in college are, are finding, you know, gym time. And mm-hmm. who the heck does that in college? Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to realize they're always watching us. Let me ask um, about what, what is really the most important message you're trying to get across uh, in this in this new book, Great Leaders Have No Rules. What's, what's the big idea that you want to make sure all listeners and readers take away? The big idea is that you are leading, whether you want to be or not. You are influencing everyone around you. And you need to be mindful of that and also realize that uh, what you may have been taught in your Management 101 program uh, years ago, um, if it's not updated, it might actually be hurting some of your relationships with your team, might be impeding uh, employee engagement. Open-door policy – hurts productivity and relationships with the team. Office hours and one-on-one meetings will strengthen engagement and productivity, oddly enough. But the, the real takeaway to me, Stu, is just whether it's your, your own personal uh, health, mental and physical health, or your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your family, we're not talking about leadership at work like it's something – that you seatbelt in your car and drive with you to work and <laughs> let it run around at work. You are leading everywhere all of the time. Mm-hmm. And to just be mindful of that, just to sort of walk in leadership, I think, will make a big difference. Well, it, it clearly has for you. And uh, I appreciate that uh, you've taken the time to try to share your wisdom, which you have so so well and in such an uh, accessible way with great leaders have no rules. Um, there's a question I've been asking all my guests this year, which I am thinking of as the year of accountability. Mm. And the question is this, how do you hold yourself accountable for living and working according to your core values? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. Um, I have a morning ritual. So the first thing I do when I wake up is I remind myself, I state sort of my, my personal uh, mission, vision. Mm. Uh, I think of three things I can feel grateful for. And, and the emphasis there is you need to feel it, not just I can be grateful for this house. If you're not feeling it, that doesn't count. You have to feel it. Okay. And then uh, my three to thrive are, are uh, health, wealth, and relationships. And I just sort of uh, think about literally in the next 24-hour period, what will I do in each of those areas of my life to get back to my, my values in those areas? You know, so if it's, if it's around my value of, of physical health, I think about, okay, it's a busy day, but I'll get on that treadmill at 8 p.m. Or I can't do the treadmill, so I better watch what I eat today. Or I didn't talk to my kids yesterday. I'd better drop a text message this morning. So I do that every single morning. 
That's a great practice. Thanks for letting us know about that. And thanks for for sharing your wisdom with us on the show, Kevin. How can people find out more about your great work and uh, how to access more of your wisdom? Yeah, the the book is available in bookstores and and online everywhere. And if you just want more information and the the free downloads and action plan, they can go to norulesleadership.com. Action plan? Free action plan. Take action. So there's a guide there. Uh, where is it again? NoRulesLeadership.com. All right. The name of the book is Great Leaders Have No Rules. Kevin Cruz, uh, thank you so much for joining me in the studio tonight. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin Cruz and that it provoked your thinking about rules about open-door policies, calendars versus lists, and other possibilities for creative action to enhance your impact as a leader in the different parts of your life. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. If you're in a position to influence rules, consider starting a conversation about shared values and co-creating standards, guidelines, and guardrails but not rules. If that's not an option for you, then how about letting those you work with know when you're available, when your door is truly open, and when you are not available, when the door is closed, so you can get some real deep work done during those times when you choose to be unavailable. Or, here's a third idea for an experiment you might try. Why not switch from lists to calendars for those things that really, really must get done? Let me know how it goes. If you try any one of these ideas for improving your impact, you can get in touch with me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.